As you know, we've, we've been talking about God's Word. We've been talking about the Fire Bible for a couple of weeks. We've made this, uh, set this time aside to, uh, to have the opportunity and privilege of giving extra money above our tithe to uh, purchasing Bibles and distributing them around the world. And so, you know, the th one thing we do about with, with money here at Hope Crossings is, first off, we don't really talk about it much, but we always warn you when we are. Have you noticed that? I, I, I teach on money uh, about two Sundays every three years, but I always warn you. <laughs> so you don't show up and go, okay, great. I showed up on the, you know, I brought my friend with me and we're going to talk about money. Oh, Awesome. You know, we don't have to do that. So, you know, and so we prepped you and prepared you. And so I'm just expecting for the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us as to what we should do. And we always say, if, if, you, if the Holy Spirit doesn't prompt you to give, don't. Maybe he'll do it next week. Okay, that was a joke. Okay, all right, you can laugh, all right. Well, we have somebody special with us today, and uh, this is someone that I met uh, a couple years ago, and I've gotten to know him a little bit and just enjoy him very, very much. I also mentioned to you because, you know, Mark Northcutt is a part of our church family here. He's actually an interim pastor at a church up in Tekoa right now. They're in between pastors, so that's part of uh, Mark's ministry. He steps into those roles and will be that interim pastor for a period of time. And that should be coming to a close pretty soon, so he'll be back in fellowship with us for how long, we never know, but we appreciate Mark so much. But I went to Mark and I said, Mark, tell me about Tom Green, because I'd met Tom Green, but I didn't know Tom Green, but Mark knows everybody. So I said, Mark, tell me about Tom Green. He said, Tom Green has been the national youth director for the Assemblies of God. He's been the national men's director for the Assemblies of God. He has been district youth ambassador. He's been, he's had all these different positions and places. He's well connected. He's all those things. He said, but Tom Green is still the same man. He's genuine. He's real. He hasn't let anything go to his head. He's just a real man who loves Jesus and loves people and wants to get the gospel out across the world. And he's very humble. And I said, he's our kind of man. I said, I got to have him to Hope Crossings because he's going to, he's going to love us and we're going to love him. And already today, um, Tom Green has been very, very complimentary of you as a church body. So uh, what you're doing in welcoming people is very, very, very noticeable. So he is from Oklahoma. Does that mean you're a Sooner? Yes, sir. All right. Well, hey, let's put our hands together and uh, welcome Tom Green here. He's going to talk to us. All those, all those kind words, the man about had me crying there for a second, and then he turns around and says, he's a Sooner, and I just felt the whole room kind of ice up right there, you know, and because I know, I know, I know, I know, and, and, and I, you just need to know this, this, this last national championship, I've never been a bigger Georgia fan in my life, and so anyway... <laughs> Uh, so we, and I'm not saying that my, my, my colleague, David Rayleigh happens to be Bama to the bone and, and all of that, but he's trying to get to heaven anyway. And so we, but so we, we get caught up in some of that. And you know what? It's maybe to my benefit that Georgia came back and beat my sooner several years ago and I'm still bruised over it, but that's all right. We we're grateful. We didn't come here to talk about football. 
<laughs> Although I've got a feeling there's a few in the room we could talk for hours about football. It's the most wonderful time of the year, other than Christmas, of course. Pastor, thank you for your kind words. I don't know what I owe Mark Northcutt because, because uh, he, I, I do know Mark well. I'm not sure I would have been that generous toward him. So that's, uh, that's absolutely amazing. And uh, no, I'm teasing about that, of course. But it is just wonderful to be with you and, uh, and uh, Pastor. I have had the honor of being with him and hanging out at a couple of events. Lisa, thank you so very much. You have done a great job raising your husband. And uh, I, I know your investment has paid off in many ways, and, and I'm grateful. But uh, I, you just, I want you to hear this, okay? When we get together in these various events, and there's other pastors from across Georgia and really from across the southeast and everything, I'm always impressed with the heart of Chris Stevens. And when I walked onto this campus today, this gorgeous campus, I was overwhelmed with uh, the influence of he and Lisa. And, uh, and when, I, when I say Chris and Lisa, I hope I'm not sounding disrespectful, okay? Pastor and Mrs. Stevens. And, uh, uh, but my, when people ask my, my wife, we've been loved long enough, people walk up to my wife occasionally and they'll, they'll call her Sister Green. And she says, no, that would be Tom's grandmother. And, uh, and she's in heaven, so we don't go there. But uh, from the time that I drove onto the campus, I can just feel and sense the presence of God. And the exciting part about it, I mean, there were people greeting me in the parking lot as I came in, making me feel welcome. And Pastor, yes, thank you. You have prepared the people for what we're focused on today. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite as generous as he is. I, I get to talk about money every Sunday. And one way I justify it, if, you, uh, if you're struggling in, uh, your, in how your finances are and the things that God requests of you through paying of tithe and giving of offerings and all that, well, you need to take that up with Jesus because, you know, the, actually the only subject that Jesus taught on more than money was heaven. Go back and check it out. Write it down as you, you read his, uh, his teachings. Now, why is that? Well, I, it's my personal opinion. I, I just think that Jesus understood Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And, uh, but Jesus understood that, uh, you know what, that love of money could hinder us from going to what he loved to talk about the most, and that being heaven. And so today, I'm not here to teach on that principle. Pastor will do that, and you'll, uh, you'll trust him on it a lot more. I'm here to tell the story of what God is doing through this amazing tool known as the Fire Bible. A little bit of personal history. As Pastor shared with you, I've had the honor of leading in, in various areas. I don't mind telling you, I spent almost 30 years of my life primarily in youth ministries and uh, loved absolutely every minute of it. And I would probably still be involved very actively in youth ministries if it were not for my birth certificate. There are people that just kind of brand you, you're just too old, you know, and, and all of that. And so I'd, I'd rather be in a room full of teenagers than any, any other group. And so it's, it's incredible. So that's a little bit of our personal background. It was 10 years ago this coming November that God awakened me at 5 o'clock on a Monday morning. And how do I know it was God? Because when Tom Green wakes up at 5 o'clock on a Monday morning, that's God. And this time it wasn't a guilty conscience. And it was him speaking to my heart that it was time to step down from the position that I was in at the time, which was men's ministries. And uh, I resigned that afternoon, tried to be obedient, had no idea what I was going to do, where I was going, had no idea how I was going to make a living. Uh, I just knew that I felt like that this is what God wanted. And as I resigned, the Holy Spirit brought back a memory that I had from a pastor in South Texas 
who asked me one time, he said, Tom, if you could do anything you wanted the rest of your life and money was no object, what would you do? There's that word money again. I'm guilty as charged. I said, Pastor, I think I can give you the answer to that, but money is an object. He said, what do you mean? I said, I have taken a wife. There was not one man courageous enough to say amen right there. Did you, did you hear that? Not one. And then I, then I went on, and she has five grandchildren. They happen to be mine as well. And are, are there any grandparents in the room that understand this? My wife thinks it's her responsibility to provide every article of clothing they'll ever wear. And uh, if it's time for pizza, guess who's buying? And, and all that goes along with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty as she is, though. First time I held my first grandchild, I, I held Claire in my arms, and I, I made a huge mistake. I looked into her eyes, and I said, Sweetheart, you're going to have a new car on your 16th birthday. <laughs> it was in a moment of weakness. It wasn't a new car, but I had a car on the driveway for her when she was 16. Her daddy, I didn't care if he, drove, if he walked everywhere when he was 16. That's it. That was his problem, not mine. But the grandchildren are different. Matter of fact, I looked in the eyes of her, and I looked to my son. I said, Andy, I apologize. He said, what, Dad? I said, son, I never felt this good about you. <laughs> it is God's reward for not killing your own children. And so we're, we're grateful. Pardon me for saying all that, but to say this, it was within a few hours that the Holy Spirit began dealing with me, and, and uh, I'm getting, Pastor, you're helping me to fulfill that dream, your invitation to stand before you today, because I just committed the rest of my life, I guess, maybe God will have other plans somewhere down the road, but I, I just love appealing in behalf of missions and missionaries, because missionaries are my heroes, and missions is the heartbeat of God. He commanded us, the one command he gave us, take this gospel to every creature. We're half a world behind. Guess what? We've got more work to do. And so we're going to commit to that today. Would you take your copy of God's Word and go with me to the second chapter of the book of John, whether that's the printed copy that you brought with you or whether it's your Bible app. Uh, but uh, we're going to read just a couple of verses of Scripture from, from the second chapter of the book of John. Now, when I talk about Bible apps, you've got to be careful with this. Several years ago, I was invited to uh, speak on the Fire Bible on a Sunday. I don't get to speak on the Fire Bible every week. Sometimes last Sunday was Faith Promises for Missions and in various ways. But in that process, it was a Fire Bible Sunday, and this pastor, he had a brilliant idea, Pastor Chris. He, he said, Tom, I want to challenge my people Everybody in the congregation just to commit $10 for every Bible they own. And I thought, all right, I can do that. I thought I had done my homework before I got there. I, uh, it was, at that point, it was like the biggest commitment I'd ever personally made. What's that all about? Well, my wife and I, we went through our house, and we discovered that we had 27 Bibles in our house. We're kind of the too much is given crowd, right? So I already knew what my commitment was going to be. But I hadn't done my homework properly. Then I picked up and I said, as a matter of fact, I got this piece of plastic. And I was being so, uh, I, I'm, I'm the most technologically challenged person you'll ever meet in your life. So I thought I had all this covered. I said, I've got one Bible app. And I opened it up and I looked down and it had 189 copies. 
and translations. And oh boy, did that change my commitment that day. So I'm not going to be doing that to us, but we are blessed to hold what I refer to as this love letter from heaven in our hands. We are blessed, and we have a responsibility that goes with that. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Verse number one, it's a story most in the room have heard, perhaps read on several occasions. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus, thank you again. What a blessing it is to be in your house with your people with friends, with new friends. Lord, we're overwhelmed with your goodness to us. We pray, dear Lord, that you'd have your way in the remaining moments of this service. Go beyond the words of a preacher and help each of us to hear from you. Help us to leave this place knowing that we did hear, even in a small voice, the presence of God, and we had the courage and the obedience, the discipline, the character to respond as you would have us to. Thank you for it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. Well, I want you to understand something. I'm going to begin this message with a disclaimer. I had a few sermons in my life. I probably owe people an apology at the end, but this is not, uh, this is not that. It's a full disclaimer. I am fully aware that the Scripture declares Jesus was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Those last three words may be among the most important words in all of God's Word, yet without sin. If Jesus had not been the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Him dying on the cross of Calvary would have been of no value. It would have been no different than if I died on the cross for you. It, it, it wouldn't have done anything. But the, but the Lamb of God came in perfection, had never, been, had never sinned, and took the sin of the world, your sin, my sin, upon Himself. Well, I'm not here to preach the length of that message, but I just want you to understand that I'm fully aware of that. Why, why do I want you to know that? Because I happen to believe that Jesus came as close to sin in this story as any time in all of the while he was on this planet. How so? Mary, his mother, is there at this marriage celebration. She turns to her son. She has an observation. It's four words. It doesn't strike me as a mother trying to stir up an argument or debate with her son. That's, that's not the idea. She just very simply observes, turns to him. I don't know. It may have been in a very quiet voice, but she says, they have no wine. To which her son replies, woman, stop right there for a second. Did you catch that? That's exact. That's what he said. It's there. It's in red ink. And it, go, it, it gets worse. Woman, what have I to do with you? That scares me. I don't know about the mother that raised you or is raising you, but I don't recall ever in my lifetime being tempted to one time look at my mother and say, woman, I, again, don't know about your mom. If ever I had said to my mother, woman, what have I to do with you? I got to tell you, I'm not sure I would be standing before you today. I've got a feeling my mother might have sent me into eternity or very close to it, not really caring about my destination. 
My mother never one time looked at me and said, wait till your father comes home. She never waited for my father to come home. She would take care of business and then say, when, when your daddy gets home, and I would pray for a loss of memory, but God never honored my prayers. That's right. I was raised by parents that believed that Solomon was correct. And that I'm not going to go into that issue and debate. But I, that, Now, Tom, you sound like a bitter guy. No, I'm not a bitter guy. But I guess I'm a better guy. I don't, I'm not. No, no, none of that. That was my parents. And Jesus turns to his mother. Woman, what have I? Now, I've already, some of you are looking at me. Pastor, you're going to have to deal with this because some people are looking at me like, I can't believe he's talking about Jesus this way in the house of God. I've already made it very, very clear. Jesus never sinned. I'm probably misrepresenting the thought. Maybe that's those 30 years of youth ministries coming out. You're a little bit dame bread, you know. And so when all that, that, that comes along with that, but uh, it, it's, it's not so much the words of Jesus. It's the way Mary responds that I want us to focus on for the next few minutes. Mary shows herself to be the model of all motherhood. Ladies, those of you that are mothers in this room, I think you will, I think you'll validate what I'm getting ready to say on this. You know what? When, uh, when, when Jesus says, uh, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. Did you notice how Mary responded? She didn't say one word to him. The scripture says, we read it right there. She turned to the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do it. Why is that a model of motherhood? Because the wisdom of such. I think a little typical Jewish mama might have started chewing him out, spitting in his face and saying, Jesus, don't you ever talk to me like that again. You don't, I don't care how old you are. You don't talk to your mama. This. But she didn't deal with it. The scripture says that she very simply turned to the servants and said, whatever he says to you, do it. Ladies, am I wrong? I think this is a mother's way of saying to her son without saying anything to her son, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. And Jesus, being the perfect son, moves into action, and there we have what we commonly refer to as the first miracle of Jesus. It was not the first miracle of Jesus. You spoke of it earlier. It was when uh, he spoke all this into existence. The, the miracles have always been and always will be. But his first public miracle of his ministry is recorded in this particular story. Why? Because he, well, being the perfect son, he did what Mary said for him when she didn't even say it to him. Whatever he says to you. Boy, I wish I had time to touch on that. Can you imagine how much better our life would be? Oh, it's, it's, not, it's not the simplicity of putting an armband on that says, what would Jesus do? It's a matter of what would Jesus say? What would Jesus speak to your heart? Are you sensitive to the leadership of God? Are you sensitive to what he speaks to you in the process? Is there something there? Whatever he says to you, do it. That's why we speak of missions today. When I share with you, half the world is still waiting for an adequate presentation of the gospel. That's not something that I rejoice in. That concerns me. We've had 2,000 years to do the one responsibility that Jesus gave us, to take this gospel to every creature. In the last chapter of the book of Matthew, it's recorded among his words that we are to make disciples of all nations, not every other nation. We're not to preach to every other person. The reason for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, according 
according to the first chapter of the book of Acts is that we will be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's our, everything that we do, every dollar you send, every missionary you support, every prayer you offer in behalf of missionaries and the heroes around this world that are committed to this task, it's all an investment in the responsibility of whatever he said for us to do, and we commit ourselves to that task. Green, I thought we were here to talk about the fire Bible. Well, boy, I'm glad you asked that. Because when we celebrate what is commonly referred today as the fire Bible, it wasn't always that way. Some 40 years ago, nobody had even considered the possibility of something like this tool that's now being pla been placed in the hand of more than 12 million leaders around the world. How did that happen? I wish I had time to go into the depths of the story, but I'll give you the highlights of such. There was a young missionary family by the name of Don and Linda Stamps and their three little stair-step children. They had been assigned, not by the Assemblies of God missions movement that we're a part of, but a, another religious organization. That it was God's call on their life to go to Brazil. When they arrived in Brazil, sent by another group, well, they discovered that there was such a move of God in the late 1970s that was happening across that nation. Many have referred to it as the greatest move of God since the book of Acts, and it was happening at such a great degree. Not only did it influence the people of Brazil, but it, it, it really influenced those missionaries. Don and Linda themselves received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. The next thing they received was a letter inviting them back to the states so that they could give an account for this, uh, quote, false doctrine that they had allowed to enter into their ministry. At the end of that meeting in the middle part of the states, guess what? It didn't go well. Don and Linda lost their assignment they thought their dreams were over. They retired in their 20s to a, a, a wheat farm in western Kansas, thinking the only harvest they would ever have a part of in the rest of their lives would be the wheat that they had sown in the ground. Well, in that church one Sunday morning, there was a little lady that walked up to them. She had heard bits and pieces of their story. She started inquiring a little bit more, and she looked at them, and she said, you know, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's this group called the Assemblies of God. They not only allow you to do what you've experienced, but they actually want you to tell people about that. They want you to teach and preach it, and these are her words. I'm quoting. She said, those people are crazy. <laughs> How do I tell you? You're in a crazy church today. Why? Because we believe in the move of God. We believe in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We believe in His direction. They soon became Assemblies of God missionaries. First time that I got to meet them was when they came to our congregation and told their story. And I've never in my life seen uh, people respond that, at, at, well, what usually can take up to two years to raise the necessary budget to go. They, they had accomplished in less than nine months. They packed their bags. They moved back to Brazil. They were so excited. And yet when they arrived, this move of God, this sweeping of the Holy Spirit, the, the revival across the nation, it was greater than ever. It had, it had gone to a crescendo that even they couldn't imagine. Soon they discovered that there were churches that were being planted on a daily basis. And the exciting part about that is the churches are being planted on a daily basis. The challenging part of it was that there were pastors being assigned who didn't have the qualifications to be a pastor. Didn't have experience, didn't have education. They couldn't build Bible schools quickly enough. I'm not the first to say this. I first heard it from a missionary by the name of Ron Maddox. He said, there's nothing quite so scary as an untrained Pentecostal preacher. 
In communities, in small villages, people would say, well, you, you've known Jesus for six months? Yes, well, welcome, Pastor. Because you must be experienced that you've been saved that long. It was at that moment that Don Stamps discovered that what the people lacked, what the pastors lacked. It, it, I, well, thank God you're a part of a movement that is, has the, the greatest missions training in the world and Bible schools around the world. Pastor, you've been aware of what happens through Global University and, and all the various things that happen. There, there are more than a million students around the world that are enrolled at some point uh, of training. And so we thank God for that. But the problem at that time was it just wasn't totally available. So how do we answer that? It was then that the Holy Spirit directed Don Stamps, and it, I had a conversation with his wife later in life, and she said, Tom, it was, it was kind of a scary moment, and I was just absolutely, I was angry. He came home one evening and announced it's time to start packing our bags. We're moving back to the States, and she thought every dream they had was just to be there in Brazil. But God had spoken to Don to put together what would be study notes, outlines, commentary, everything that was necessary to go into one volume along with God's Word that would help pastors to do what God had created them to do for that moment. They packed up their belongings. They moved back to the States. And I'm not saying it for personal, but the fact is they moved into a rented cabin in eastern Oklahoma. And Don actually committed the remaining days of his life to the building of that Bible that we commonly refer to now as the Fire Bible. As a matter of fact, I was pastoring in the eastern part of my home state at that time and when we discovered that Don in this process had been diagnosed with cancer. The doctors wouldn't even prescribe treatment. There was nothing they could do, and they, they, they gave him an amount of time. And I remember several of us ministers gathering around him at a, at a Tuesday morning meeting, and we were offering our prayers and we're offering our faith and said, Don, you don't worry about it. You keep doing what God's called you to do, and we're going to believe for your healing. And, and, and I wish you could have known Don Stamps. He, he was one of the most straightforward, just very somber persons. You, not, not Mr. Congeniality, to be honest. He turned to us and he said, Boys... Don't pray for my healing. Just pray that he'll give me time. God answered his prayer, but he didn't answer ours. A few short weeks, maybe months after Don completed the final study notes of the Old and New Testament, God took him to his reward. He never even got to see the first publication of the full Portuguese Bible of what was originally known as a full life study Bible. There may be a few in the room that actually have a copy of that that came out in the 80s and early 90s. Well, fast forward just a few years later, another missionary hero on assignment to a nation on the other side of the world. Pastor, we're streaming today, I'm assuming, and so it, I've, I've, we're not streaming? Oh, so I can be a little more bold about this then. Just far away. Why? Because, well, he was on assignment to China. You know, China, we, many, many in the room right now are wondering where you're going to eat today because we got to go find that cookie that can tell us God's plan for our lives. And so anyway, but, but the most populated nation on the planet. Well, when you're a missionary to China, nobody needs to know that you're a missionary to China. That can be very dangerous. Why? It was in 1949 when China declared themselves not only to be a communist nation, but also declared that they would be an atheistic nation. 
It was in 1977 when the premier's wife was quoted as we are the first nation on the planet where God is officially dead. Every property, every church had been either burned down or locked up and deserted. Every copy of God's word that they could possibly reach had, had been confiscated, destroyed, burned in piles all across that nation. And by 1977, they were excited to declare, we're the first nation where God is dead. One of my missionary heroes that will go unnamed right now, even for that because of the security issues, he goes there in the mid-1990s and discovers that this nation where God is dead, the Holy Spirit didn't get the memo. You see, you can't do crusades in downtown Beijing. You can't, uh, you, you can't set up Bible schools in Shanghai. You can't go to all of the, 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 the typical missionary things. So all of it happens through relationships and getting to know people. He, he secured a job as being a teacher of English and, and all that went with that. And, but, but soon he discovered that there were Christians that lived in his neighborhood in different places. One, in connecting the dots, he soon discovered that there was an underground network of churches all across China in the mid-1990s that numbered about 3 million what was referred to as house churches, where 20 to 30 people could gather under the covering of a home, leaders risking their lives to meet, people risking their freedom just to gather into those homes across that nation. And yet by conservative estimates, there were some 100 million believers, about 70 to 80 percent of them Pentecostal in their faith. The problem, most of those pastors, not only did they not have an education, they didn't even have a copy of God's Word. As a matter of fact, while I was leading men's ministries in the ministry known as Light for the Lost, I, that missionary I'm referring to, he presented to me, he said, Tom, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but, and then he reached over and he handed to me, let's see, I've got it right here somewhere. I, yep, there we go. He said, this was a pastor's library. Goodness sakes, I've got things going everywhere. Stay with me. This was a pastor's library for more than 20 years. Pastor, can you imagine that? Didn't even have a copy of God's Word. Had never seen or held Genesis to Revelation or any of the books fully. Why is that? Well, because this happens to be the presentation, if you can see it, a little child's notebook. Why would that be the, the choice? Well, that, it doesn't look like a Bible. It could be hidden. It could be uh, held in, in privacy and not, uh, not be threatened in the process. Inside this book, and I'll be happy to show you afterwards, but I, I'm still very cautious. This is one of my most precious possessions. This is a handwritten portion of the book of Acts. Portion. Well, what portion? I have no idea. I can't read it. Maybe you can help me. Why, how, how did that come about? Well, the story goes that there was a grandmother in his house church who as a child had committed herself to memorization of Scripture. Kind of a lost art if we're not careful. She dictated to another person in the church, and what I hold in my hand was the only resource that a pastor had for more than 20 years. 
put that in proper perspective, as great as the ministry of Pastor Chris is, can, how many of you would love to hear from the same verses, the same few chapters for the next 20 years? This was it. My missionary friend, he got an idea. He's trying to figure out what can we possibly do to help these folks that are in this, can't start Bible schools, can't do any training, can't, can't, can't go, and he's got all these things that cannot be done. But he had heard the story of this Bible that had been prepared in Portuguese for the pastors of Brazil. He flies back to the States, meets in a rented room at the DFW airport. He and four other businessmen start dreaming a dream about how they could possibly take that original study Bible, that full life study Bible, translate it into the Mandarin language and get it into a distribution process and be able to get that accomplished. Well, let me put it to you this way. At first, people laughed at him. They thought he was out of his mind. One of those businessmen came up with the idea that we could probably raise the money to provide 100,000 copies. The other businessman, thank God, lifted his head up and said, well, maybe I missed something. I thought you said there were three million. But that's impossible. How could we possibly do that? All I know is less than a decade later, I had the blessing of being in the room when we celebrated that the three millionth copy of what we commonly refer to as the Chinese Fire Bible, and I hold one in my hands today, and they're still being distributed, but it's not just this Bible. This Bible has now been translated into 68 different language editions. Among the latest of those editions is the Arabic language, the language of the Koran. Among those languages happens to be the Farsi Bible, the language of Iran. Well, Tom, you don't need a Bible in Iran. It's, a, it's against the law to be there. Once again, evidently the Holy Spirit hasn't figured that out. It is reported that the fastest growing percentage-wise, the fastest growing church in the world, excuse me, the fastest growing Church in the history of the church happens to be inside the borders of Iran. We're living that day, folks. We're living in the time. The Urdu Bible, the language that's being used in Pakistan and around the world, on and on and on. How did that possibly happen? Well, it happened. Why? Because, well, somebody sat in a room like this at one time and started trying to hear what God was saying. How could we possibly make that happen? And today we celebrate that not only 68 different language editions, but it's now known as the most widely distributed study Bible, not just Pentecostal, but the most widely distributed study Bible in the history of the church. All because one missionary in the early 1980s believed that he had heard from God to commit himself to the building of the materials. All because another missionary decided it was bigger than Brazil and perhaps the most populated nation on the planet could use their copy of such. And today it's a matter of trying to stay up with all the requests that are coming in from around the world. There are requests coming in from Ukraine. They need more fire Bibles in their language more than ever. What do you think? There's a reason for that. We're living in those times. Let me tell you something. I believe with all of my heart we are living in the time where Jesus said this gospel should shall be preached to all the world as a witness. But there's a responsibility that goes with that. How do we possibly continue to provide the various languages and the distribution and the cost and all the networking to be able to make that happen? How does that possibly happen? The bottom line is somebody has to pay the bills. And here we are sitting in his presence today. 
And pastor, thank you for letting your people know ahead of time. We're going to be asking people to make this thing happen. How does it possibly happen? Well, pardon the simplicity of the, of the message. You want, if, folks, if you're new here today and you want deep preaching, you'll have to come back next week. Because it doesn't get any simpler than this. Whatever he says to you, do it. God never spoke to me to start writing the study notes of a Bible. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me to write the articles and all the things that are necessary. Are you kidding? I, I don't have the background. I don't have the, I don't have the brain to do such. They don't let Tom Green preach in crusades around the world. Why? Because if they did, nobody would come. Most of my Sunday mornings, pastors will turn to me and say, Brother, I don't know where all my people are today. Well, did you announce I was coming? Because when I preach, people stay away by the thousands. But my only purpose this morning is to borrow the words of Mary. Whatever he says to you, do it. Pastor, our friend Jeff Dove, who is the executive director of making this thing happen, he sends this as a gift to you today so it can sit in your office or wherever you place it. And I don't know, you may want to use it for your daily devotions. You do understand the Mandarin language, right? And so anyway. But the next language and the next language and the next one. What would Jesus ask us to do? Now, the truth is the next language and the next language and the next language, the initial production of that will cost anywhere between $500,000 to sometimes more than a million dollars. There's so many things that go into that. The Bibles themselves, once that is done, on, on average, it's about $25 per unit. Some it's less, some it's more. Don't have an exact figure, but for about $25, you can provide a Bible just like this in the hands of a pastor, and most of whom have never held Genesis to Revelation and certainly have never had a Bible in their language. Can you imagine if today this Bible was the only Bible you had access to? then we wouldn't have access to God's Word because I don't know the first word that's inside this book. It's that important. But I close with this thought. What would Jesus ask you to do today? Whatever He says to you. I think one of the most interesting things about this story is Mary said to the servants... If we were to conduct a survey of the room, how many of you consider yourself to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, are you kidding? That would be near unanimous. I'm a Christian. No, you misunderstood the question. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we're a servant. Why was it important when Mary said to the servants, whatever he says to you, Jesus says, fill the water pots? It took servants to be able to respond to that. Am I the only person in the room that's ever fussed with God? I'm not, when I shared with you earlier how he spoke to my heart, today is the day to, to resign. I got to tell you, that wasn't the first time he had prompted me. It took a year for me to figure it out. Because sometimes it, I, I, I've been known to try to help God understand my situation. He asked to give a certain amount, and suddenly it's like, well, I don't, you know what, God, evidently you're not fully aware. I have other payments. I have cars. I have children. I have grandchildren. I have this. I have that. And, you know, I, got, I, 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 I need my money. Whatever he says to you. Servants, if I'd been a servant that day, 
Um, again, I'm the only person in the room that responds to God this way. I probably would have been saying something like, excuse me, sir, did you not hear your mother? She said we don't have wine. Water's not the problem. We've got water. That's not an issue. Why would you want to fill the water pots? And, and, and because, because it has to make sense up here. It doesn't always make sense. A few minutes, we'll bow our heads and we'll very simply say, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Now, I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I can tell you, I've heard the voice of God a lot of times where I knew that I knew that this is the Holy Spirit. I don't know what motivates that sometimes. Sometimes it's fear. Say, what? I was in a church just a couple of months after the immediate shutdown that we all experienced a couple of years ago. I had a little lady walk up to me after that service. She said, I love what you talked about there today. I love the, the concept of that Bible. That's absolutely incredible. She said, she said, Brother Tom, you have no idea what a special day this is. I said, well, well you better help me. She said, this is really an exciting day. She, now, this was an elderly couple. And I, when I'm calling somebody elderly, they are really old. She began describing their life. I'll give you the abbreviated version. She said, my husband and I live on Social Security. We have a little bit of a retirement fund set aside. We know what we have to live on, and we are able to live comfortably within that. And she's been, she gave me everything except the dollar figures. She said, one day I opened up my bank statement, and I looked there, and I realized that I had almost $3,000 more than I had written in my bank account, my checking account. She said, it scared me to death. I thought somebody has made a huge mistake. She calls her bank trying to get this thing corrected. They very kindly explained to her that that was something that the government had placed into their account. Remember, we call it the subsidy or whatever through the, the pandemic time, right? Now, we may all have our opinions as to whether that was right or wrong, but I don't know of anybody that sent it back. She said they, they explained it to me, and that made it even worse. I said, what are you talking about? That had to be a blessing. She said, oh, no, that was terrible. She said, because what I've discovered through the years, God never gives us anything extra unless something really bad is getting ready to happen. Now, you can disagree with her philosophy, but I understood her spirit. She, she was, oh, no, no, no. And she said, but today when you were talking about that Bible and then you asked us to give to that Bible at the end, I really felt God speak to me. And he said, all right, this is why I've let you have that money. And he said, she said, what? And she said, he had told me just to set it aside. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And that morning she, she gave the largest offering in the room and be, well, Tom, that's not right. That's not. I didn't talk her into doing, emptying an account. I didn't. I didn't say anything that would impress anybody. I didn't say if you've got thousands of dollars, you don't know what to do with. I mean, how many in the room could answer that question? You got thousands of dollars laying around, have no idea how to spend it. It's about obedience. She couldn't have been more excited because she was getting rid of this responsibility. Several years ago, actually two years ago, I was speaking at a church in Houston, Texas, and this is be my last story. We came to the end of the service at that particular church. They do faith promises for fire Bibles in addition to the regular missions giving. Now, folks, let me be clear about something. We are not giving a portion of our tithe to this project today. 
the tithe belongs to the local church. When I had the honor of leading the ministry known as Speed the Light, which challenges our students to provide the vehicles and, and uh, uh, transportation for all of our missionaries around the world, I would always tell teenagers across the nation, don't you dare give your tithe to Speed the Light. We don't want missionaries driving stolen vehicles. The tithe belongs to the church, that first 10% right here, Hope Crossings. But that wasn't the point. So that morning, the pastor said, Tom, we're going to receive faith promises for fire Bibles. And we're going to ask people to commit X number of fire Bibles every week or every month for the next year. And it's always an exciting Sunday. I've gotten to do that service on several occasions. And it's, it's always fun. But this particular Sunday, the afternoon service was a, a Spanish-speaking service. Well, me preaching through a translator, it's always a fun challenge. Because why? Because I don't know how to order dos enchiladas, you know, in, without, you know, in a proper sense. And those of you that are bilingual, I can't tell you how much respect I have for you. That's not me. At the end of the service... There was one young man that walked up, not with his faith promise. You probably saw this fall off the podium. You're wondering why. Let's left it there. He walked to the front of the room, and he laid that particular piece of paper on one of the fire Bibles that had been set out. I didn't steal this. Pastor came to me later, and he said, Tom, I've already paid for it, but I wanted you to have. And then he told me the story. That young man happened to be there at the invitation of another Hispanic family in the church. He was there at their invitation. Why? Because he pastored a congregation in Cuba. A congregation that was wanting to build a very humble new church building, but they would never get it built with their finances. And so the invitation was, come to the States, we'll get some services set up. And it worked out incredibly well within about uh, six weeks. Uh, the churches, they were generous enough, they more than paid for that building where they could build it for cash. But there was somebody in the congregation who had walked up to that pastor, placed in his hands this particular bill. Now, some of you in the room are going, that's $100. That's a lot of money. You're right. That's $100. That's like a tank of gas. That's a $100 bill. That's right. Take the family out to lunch today, and by the time you pay the meal and generous tip, as a Christian should, that's probably gone, close to it. Not for me, Tom. I could get, I could get 10 Big Macs with that, with a lot of fries. You're right. That's what it represents to us as Americans. You know what it represented to that Cuban pastor that day? I hold in my hand four months of salary. On average, a Cuban pastor will be paid about $25 per month. Well, Tom, it's different down there. It's a socialist nation. They get everything provided for them. <laughs> I've been there. I've seen people standing in lines. I've seen the discouragement when they walked away because nothing was left. doesn't work that way. But someone had generously said, this is for you. This is for your family. This isn't for a church building. And that day, that young man laid it on the altar. 
Am I trying to motivate anybody in the room to give four months salary? No way. Is my purpose to say whatever you got left in that account, empty it? No, 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 no. That's not my purpose at all. Mary said it right. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I could teach and preach the principles that when we give, it shall be given unto you. But I always want to make it very, very clear. The scripture says, give and it shall be given. We don't give so it will be given. But God's never a debtor to anyone when we respond in obedience. Whatever he says to you, to Don Stamps, it meant literally give the days of your life to a gift to now millions of pastors around the world. To an unnamed missionary in China, it meant dream the dream. Gather the right people around you. To those businessmen that believe that God could use them to get three million copies, it all started because somebody in the room said, I think God wants us to do this. And today, as pastor comes here in just a moment, it always comes down to whatever he says to you. Do it. That's when the miracles began. Jesus thank you. What a blessing it is to be gathered in your house, Lord. What a blessing it is to experience your presence. Lord, we are so blessed. We are overwhelmed with your good blessings. Would you help us today to hear from you, dear Jesus? Whether it's an offering today or it's a monthly donation or something that you'd ask us to do by the end of this year. Lord, the bottom line is we just want to leave this place knowing that we're part of a miracle to touch lives. While there's time, Pastor, would you come?